As if a global health crisis wasn't enough, 2020 brought us to a tipping point in our relationship with the environment. We began the year still fighting massive bushfires in Australia, which would continue to burn for months more and would foreshadow destructive wildfires that brought an orange sky to the Western United States. Millions of acres have scorched, making this the state's biggest wildfire season in modern history. On the Atlantic coast, the hurricane season was the most active on record, with 30 named storms and over 200 people dead after Hurricane Etta alone. The storm shred entire buildings in a few seconds. Oh, skyscrapers going, not good, oh no. In May, massive rainfall and swarms of locusts descended upon Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East. The UN says the locusts present an unprecedented threat to food security and livelihoods. In the same month, the Midwestern United States was devastated by a derecho, which would break records as the costliest thunderstorm in U.S. history. We have winds coming in from the west, maybe 100 miles per hour, not in a tornado, in a straight line. We felt the effects of climate change as California's Death Valley recorded the highest temperature in the world since at least 1931. Now we'll advance to tomorrow in Death Valley. 128 degrees, the highest temperature ever in Death Valley, 129 degrees. Not to mention the melting ice sheets of the Arctic, the shrinking Amazon rainforest, and the dying Great Barrier Reef, or the air pollution, flooding, and other disasters that ravaged global citizens one after another. And shortly after the next new year, a record snowfall sultry Texas hasn't seen since 1949. The entire state for the first time in weather history under that winter storm warning. And all this while dealing with a global pandemic. Welcome to Social Distances, a podcast where we examine the distances that both separate us and bring us together during the complex and compounded crises of 2020 and beyond. I'm your host, Logan, and today we're talking about environmental crises that exacerbated the inequities of 2020. Because while we all feel the effects on a certain level, we certainly don't feel them equally. We speak to Dr. Emilcar Chalou, a historian and scholar of the environmental humanities, looking at changes for human well-being as they relate to economic institutions, governance, and natural environments. When we mean environmental, we mean the reality that it's outside of humans, the outdoors or the natural world. Uh, but environment is even broader. It's, I mean, this, this room that we have here is an environment. This screen that we are looking at, that's an environment too. Uh, and uh, so environment, it could be a built environment, a virtual environment or the natural environment. Um, how we how that environment affects us and how we are affecting the environment. So in a way, the environmental humanities is that paradox, is that that we are always like in that boundary between us and the world that surrounds us. But how are the environmental humanities bringing into focus what happened in 2020 and beyond? Disasters happen every year, and scientists have been predicting the melting of the Arctic ice for half a century. So what makes this a standout year? 2020 is, is, is that triple whammy of an environmental crisis that, that has been longer in the making, uh, a health crisis, um, and a political crisis. 
It's not that these weren't issues before, but rather that their oftentimes record severity and devastation were coupled with an already struggling, tired population that couldn't easily gather, hand out emergency supplies, share meals, or even comfort one another for fear of spreading COVID-19. In the case of the West Coast wildfires, where more acreage was burning than at any point in California's history, at 4.2 million acres, 2020 was kind of a perfect storm of factors that had been built up for many years. So while we're sort of putting out the fires, both literally and metaphorically, behind, you know, there's been embers burning for for however many years, right? Wildfires that primarily affect uh in, in the United States, primarily affect uh, the Rockies and, and the West, they are they have been in the making for, for a long while in that we have an accumulation of fuel, we have a lot of wood that it's dying because of uh, more uh, disease affecting the trees. Um, global warming also brings in more cycles of drought uh, that again exacerbate the, the conditions. And we are fearing these things uh, out at this point that have been longer in the making, but in 2020, that became uh, a big event. And that holds true also for the winter storm that devastated Texas, its power grid, and its population, as millions went without power in dangerously freezing temperatures, burning wood fires or pitching tents indoors just to keep warm. And the winter storm, to me, it's it's a classic example of of global warming. <laughs> I mean, contradictory. I mean, it's a contradiction in a way, but but that's what world, global warming is about. It's not so much that uh, the temperatures are steadily going up, but that the system becomes much more. The climatic system becomes much more unstable. These crises hit environments already struggling or unprepared infrastructurally. The vulnerability of of Texas. Uh, I mean, the climatic vulnerability of Texas is, is one factor. Um, its size is another factor. Has had uh, snow several times. It's not that unusual. Um, but uh, for the last 30 years, Texas had not experienced a snowfall of more than one inch. Um, it, it's been like in, in 0 0.1, 0 0.2 inches from uh, the, that big snowstorm from uh, 1985 to the present. Um, so that, in a way, numbs the the policy senses, as I would say, or, or numbs our social, societal reactions. Um, Texas underwent a big transformation in terms of its regulation in, uh, in the provision of services, more generally, and uh, in the provision of electricity, particularly. And that system had not been stressed enough to see how uh, how it would adapt to a condition like this, to a big drop in the supply of energy and a big increase in demand of energy. And of course, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, um, in the midst of social unrest and political division. Um, and so was that uh, perhaps inequality or inequity mm -hmm. exacerbated by those factors as well? I mean, there's a strong intersectionality. That would be the, the, the jargony word in academia to, to talk about that. Uh, but I, 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 I like to call it the, the, the triple whammy or the double whammy factor. It's that that uh, definitely when, when you have, uh, uh, say, um, marginalization, when you have uh, increased poverty, inequality, um, and uh, uh, health, for, uh, 
health conditions, that increases the vulnerability uh, of, uh, of the population. And it doesn't increase the vulnerability the same for everybody. Uh, the case of, of Texas could be precisely like a very good uh, example of how this affects unequally. Uh, if I have enough money in my checking account, then I can check in in, uh, in a hotel and weather the storm that way. Uh, some uh, houses as well, uh, if, if you have the, that level of income, you can um, uh, have your own power generator. And, uh, and that's something that you can afford, right? Uh, other people cannot afford that. Even if I have a generator, maybe I can afford paying that very high rate for the gas uh, or, or kerosene and others cannot afford that high rate, right? So um, all these conditions, uh, of course, increase the vulnerability of the population to, to climate crisis and to these health crises as well. Maybe we can unpack the term a little bit more because it seems to be quite the buzzword to talk about um, environmental justice. When we say to, to execute environmental justice, what does that actually mean? Environmental justice um, basically means that uh, everybody has a right to a healthy uh, environment in the full meaning of the word healthy healthy in terms of disease-free, but also healthy in stimulating uh, or, or, or um, fostering well-being, right? Think about migrant farm, farm workers, right? The, in the 1970s, this was 60s and 70s, this was a movement that was very, still today it's active, but at that moment it was emerging as a big force. Um, and we thought about it primarily as an economic movement of uh, migrant workers looking for better, uh, better conditions. It's totally an environmental movement. Uh, the, the, the better conditions had to do with pesticides, right? And, and, and experiencing uh, work conditions that, that, that were healthy and, and working uh, outside in, uh, in, 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 in conditions that, that would help them uh, be be well and those labels and those uh, ways that we choose to represent struggles i think are very powerful in uh in excluding and including people in in the conversation uh and in in seeing different people having a stake in these in these uh, conversations because we tend to think of environmental movements as pretty monolithic and the uh, perception for uh, African-American populations, Hispanic populations as well, is that they are not being represented in those movements. Native Americans, similar way. I mean, at the same time that uh, we have a movement to uh, to make more national parks, uh, those national parks were expelling Native Americans from, uh, were evicting Native Americans from uh, those ancestral lands. Right. Uh, so uh, we, we have that legacy of, of uh, environmental movements uh, being white, middle class, even upper class, um, and not interacting with uh, other concerns for, uh, with, with uh, say, economic concerns or health concerns. So the first side of the coin, 
there is a great disparity between races and classes as we are hit by disaster after disaster. On the other side of the coin, the pandemic may also have brought on a great equalizer of perceptions, a sort of reckoning between the individual and the collective. Suddenly, everybody is, is aware of the vulnerability. Everybody is aware of the risks. Uh, and in that sense, it does change perceptions. Uh, and um, I, I also think it, it, it moves people to care more in that you are seeing it in your own life, right? Uh, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't want to miss that, that perspective because especially in the history of, of epidemics and disease, typically we talk about the disease as, as the great equal, or death as the great equalizer, right? And by the end of the day, everybody can die of, uh, of, of an epidemic disease, right? Uh, and it affects the rich, the poor, different ethnic groups, etc. Maybe at very different rates, not maybe, certainly at very different rates. Um, the, the poor, marginalized are much more vulnerable, um, but it affects everybody. Whether it is for ethical or self-driven reasons, society has had a response and our governing bodies are learning to react to crises. And perhaps we are even getting better at acting on the issues that we've been hesitant to act on before. These, these crises are, are, are amazing in terms of bringing in cooperation and bringing people together. In the case of, of uh, the case that I know much, much better is the case of Mexico City in 1985. Uh, the earthquake demonstrated the, the failure of the state and at the same time, a civic community that uh, was organized around neighborhoods to help each other. From that moment, uh, what you have is the rise of a political awareness of uh, the population in Mexico City that brought a new government uh, within three years uh, in, in the city of Mexico. And then eventually uh, that, uh, uh, that seed started to grow in the 90s into a, a more a nationwide democratic uh, movement. All that, I wouldn't say that just grew out of the earthquake, but the earthquake was a great catalyst for that uh, transformation to happen. Of course, it's not necessarily the case that, that we come stronger as a community out of the, of the crisis, that that could be exactly the opposite as well. Depends on, on, on how it hits and how we resolve it as well. I think it's important how our institutions work uh, and how uh, we take um, the experience, distill lessons, and uh, we have the organization, the organizational capacity to prescribe the solution for the for future years, uh, and I think that's that's the uh, the big challenge that that we have, particularly uh, in the United States right now. It's that uh, this is hitting us in a moment of of strong political gridlock. While we might think of environmental crises and the inequities that come along with them as highly divisive partisan issues, historically. The complex web of implications from environmental policy have crossed political boundaries. Environmental policy has gone through a pendulum, right, and, and a very strong swing um, in between the different administrations. Uh, that pendulum and that strong alignment of, uh, uh, of uh, party and policies, um, that's, I would say, a 40-year-old phenomenon. Um, 
if we think about uh, the the uh, wave of uh, political reformism that brought us the institutions that we still live by today that that um, that regulate uh, environmental issues that came uh, in the late 60s and early 70s Richard Nixon had a very strong role in those uh, in, in passing those regulations as executive orders and also uh, uh, as acts uh, of of, uh, of Congress so uh, This pendulum is, is a legacy of the 1980s, uh, and, and I mean of, of the political climate that started in the 1980s, in which we have a much more um, divided uh, alignment of, of um, uh, environmental ideas, environmental policies, uh, and, uh, and economic ideas, and, and, uh, and politics in general. That also means that the environment carries social and even economic implications that reach far beyond one's personal beliefs about resource protection or climate change. At the same time, we have tracked environmental issues very, I mean, they, they have their own track. They are environmental issues. They are not economic issues. They are not social issues. They are not uh, cultural issues. The truth of it is that they are all connected. Um, And look, I mean, the effect of, of, of this storm in Texas is, is, is a clear testament of how it affects the economy. Uh, the uh, hurricanes affecting all our, our refi refinery, uh, um, uh, affecting the refineries on the Gulf is also highlighting the, the, the impact. Corporations are not, big global corporations are not getting into uh, issues of climate change out of uh, uh, um, just trying to be good citizens. It's because it makes business sense to address the risk involved in a more unstable uh, environment. So I, I hope that uh, our political environment starts to modify in a way to uh, address uh, the environmental issues uh, as intrinsical to the well-being of the population uh, and the, the continuous growth of, of our economy. On a personal level or on a policy level, what do you hope that we come out of this amalgamation of crises with? Mm -hmm. I think uh, that uh, COVID has exacerbated uh, inequalities in a way that, that may create a long-term damage. At the same time, it should be a moment in which we should realize that what happens in Wuhan affects us, right? Uh, that we are all in this together. I also hope that we come with the realization that, uh, that different worlds are possible and that we have the capacity to adapt very, very, very quickly. Uh, I'm coming from an environment, academia, that it's well known for being extremely traditional in terms of, of, of uh, its organization and glacial pace in, in decision making. Uh, just seeing that in one week, uh, the, my 700 plus colleagues in, in Bowling Green State University moved all the classes to online. Folks who never uh, heard about Zoom, uh, within two weeks were holding uh, meetings, right, on Zoom and, and, and adjusting the classes one day to another. Uh, that's, um, that's something unprecedented, but it's something that, that 
that it's empowering. You can see that change can happen very quickly. Right? And I'm seeing this in, in academia, uh, but I'm seeing this all over the place, right? How quickly different organizations adapted, had to respond. And of course, we made tons of mistakes. Uh, and, and, uh, and we got a little bit better over, over time, and some, sometimes we don't get <laughs> much better over time. But we come with that realization that change, uh, that change is possible. I'm your host, Logan, and this is Social Distances, where each week we look at a different cross-section of society that has been impacted by the crisis and unpack topics ranging from the environment, earth and death, shelter, media, race relations, and more, through insights from historians, anthropologists, policymakers, and other researchers. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the video edition on social media under at MidStory or at www.midstory.org. This program is made possible in part by Ohio Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Social Distances is produced by MidStory, edited by Samuel Chang, written by Ruth Chang and Logan Sander, with original music by Dream Louder, and graphics by Jesse Walton. <laughs>